been a little while since I've gotten to share with you. I've got a little bit of a cold going, and so um, hopefully I don't fade out on you, although I know that could kind of raise some conflicted prayers from you guys. You might say, God, help him to lose his voice so we can get to the food early. I don't know, so uh, please don't do that. Please pray that I feel better. I'd like to feel better. Um, but uh, So we're, we're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah this morning, as we have been for the past uh, few weeks, and uh, as we will be for the next few weeks to come. And uh, to get started this morning, I'll, I'll uh, ask, have you, have, you, have you noticed that um, every once in a while things seem to fall apart, right? And um, if you hadn't noticed that, just turn on the news. That's how they make their money and sell commercials or however they make their money. Um, they'll let you know that things are falling apart, right? And uh, that's on a, on a big scale and, and on our you know, small-scale, personal-life level, things sometimes fall apart, whether it's the the um, New Year's resolution that has is ancient history by now and has fallen apart already, or, and it isn't even February, or the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the thing that, that might even be forefront in your mind. Um, when I talk about things falling apart, uh, that thing that has you feeling like, you know what, I thought God was there for me, but this thing came down hard. And to be honest, it feel like, feels safe, things fall apart, there's surprises, sometimes things blow up. It happens, thank you. For... So we're in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is going to help us with your exploding water bottle. What do you have in there, by the way? I don't want to know. All right, potluck after, we want to share. So uh, ne- Nehemiah, let's let's uh, let's jump into it because um, what, when things fall apart, that's the bad news. The good news is God's in the biz- business of putting things back together. God has a rebuilding project, all right, and He's got a rebuilding project for us personally. He's got a rebuilding project for the world. He wants us to cooperate with His rebuilding project. And it's important for us to get on the same page with what God is doing. So let's see if we can do that this morning. All right, we're going to do a little bit of review because um, Nick's done a good job of covering Nehemiah 1 and part of chapter 2. We're going to fly through this and, and um, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I got way too much stuff to cover today. You say, what else is new, Steve? You always have way too much to cover. I know I'm sick. I got too much to cover. I don't know. I just pray for me that we get through this. Don't pray that it ends soon, and you can eat. We're gonna. This is all gonna work out. All right. Nehemiah one, though. Let's start by way of review. Nehemiah one, verse one. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me. Those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nick has covered this, and I'm not going to 
jump into all the history and everything here, but other than to say, Nehemiah was living in a time when, when things were falling apart and the wall at Jerusalem, his, his, the homeland of his people was in disrepair and God put it on Nehemiah's heart to do something about it. Now, when we read the Bible, when we look at whatever part we're looking at, and here we're looking at Nehemiah, this, this book kind of buried in the depths of the Old Testament, before Jesus even came, it, it can be hard for us to kind of figure out what, what it's talking about, first of all, and then how what it's talking about applies to us. Reading the Bible can be hard work, and applying it can be really tricky. And so I'm going to suggest to you that there's, there's three different levels that we should be looking at when we look at Scripture. And, um, and we, we need to be you know, really careful before God to make sure that we don't treat the Bible lightly, but that we treat it as the holy word of God that's given to us for our instruction. That conveys how God has worked with his people throughout history. So there's three basic levels. And those of you that were here, you know, a year or so ago, whatever time it was, we were going through the book of Acts. We, we talked about these three levels, but I wouldn't expect you necessarily to remember them. This is good review, but it's good for us to think about them. There's one kind of the big level, the meta level, the grand scheme, what uh, some theologians call and Bible scholars call salvation history. That is God's big plan for the world. That big grand rebuilding process that God has for the world. And that process, that plan, that, that, that process by which God desires to make everything right is a plan that he is accomplishing through his son Jesus who died and rose again. When we look at scripture, any particular part, we should be looking to see how this part fits in the big plan. Okay, that's one level. Then one step down from that, we should look at kind of the basics of the particular story or whatever is being conveyed in that passage of scripture itself. The basic history, what the characters in the story did. Now, that's common sense, right? We we get that. You read a story or you read uh, some passages of Scripture and, and you just kind of look to see what's going on there. And sometimes that's harder than others, to be honest. But in a book like Nehemiah, which is basically telling a story, it's what we call a historical book, which is different than Psalms, which is a book of songs, right? Um, the law, which says, do this, don't do this, thou shalt, thou shalt not. This is history, but when we read history, we should look at kind of just what the characters in the story are doing. That's the second level. First level, big picture, salvation history. Second level, just the basic history of what's going on. Then the third level, if we've done our homework right, we're in tune with what uh, our hearts are right before the Lord, we have this idea of application. How does this story, these words, this passage of Scripture apply to me and we should always read the bible look at the bible hear the bible anytime we're exposed to the bible it should always be about how does this apply to me 
But that's where we get into the tricky part, right? Application can be very, very tricky. People can read the Bible and come up with one application. Somebody can read the same passage and come up with a totally different application that might even be at odds with what the first person read. Application can be tricky. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about um, how we can be on the same page with, with um, what God wants us to get out of Scripture so that we can apply it truthfully and in keeping with what God wants. And, and part of that is to understand these other two levels, salvation history and basic history, because the Bible certainly doesn't mean something that it never meant when it was first written. So we need to understand what is the context of, of the particular passage we're looking at. So the, the passage I just read, this, this Nehemiah 1, verse 1, um, uh, let's, let's kind of look at it in the big picture of the history of the Bible. So the Bible is a big, thick book, right? I don't know, lots of pages, depending on what version. I got kind of a skinny one up here, but it's still like 2,000 pages long. All right, maybe not. I exaggerated. 1,200 pages long. Uh, some some, some are, are much longer than that, right? And, and uh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, words, all right? That's a big book, and it covers a big period of time. And the, the biggest chunk of that time, uh, vi- and I told you guys, I got too much to cover. I'm going to give you a history of the entire Bible. What am I thinking? All right, we're, we're going to do this real quick. Abraham, about 2,000 years before Jesus. So think about that. Jesus walked on this earth about 2,000 years ago. Abraham is that far removed from Jesus, 2,000 years before him. Like 2,000 B.C., Abraham, this guy was walking around. God promised that he'd make his descendants into a great nation. And Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. That all happened like 2,000 years before Jesus, starting in around Genesis 12, about 10 pages into the book. All right? So 2,000 B.C. is an important date with Abraham. About... 1500 B.C. is Moses. Moses, after the 12 tribes, they, they, uh, uh, they, they multiplied and, and they became a great nation. They went down into Egypt and, and they multiplied and they were taken as slaves. And you know the story. God delivered them through Moses. And so scholars will differ on when exactly that happened. But for round numbers, we'll say it's about 1500 B.C. All right. Then fast forward another 500 years to the time of David after the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and went into the promised land <coughs> Excuse me, and, and, uh, and settled there. God raised up uh, a man named David to be their king. And this golden age started to uh, emerge and was very short-lived. But God promised through David that he would establish his kingdom forever. King David, about 1000 B.C. But that golden age was short-lived. And David had a son, Solomon. Solomon, uh, after Solomon died, the, the uh, nation of Israel split and just went downhill from there. And so the, by 500 B.C., the, the, the Israelites had abandoned following God. And so God withdrew his presence, his protective presence from the nation, as he said he would. And as he had been patiently working with them for all these years, he finally because of their disobedience, removed his protective presence. And the enemies of God's people came in 
and ultimately the Babylonians in around 500 B.C., 586 to be exact, they came and they, they took the remnant of the Israelites out of the land and sent them into exile. That's a lot of stuff to know. But, but you get it. We just, we just covered this big chunk of the Bible, the Old Testament, and then 500 years later, Jesus came. Okay? It's important for us when we're reading Scripture to kind of plug it in to what's going on. And Nehemiah, this book we're looking at, is after the exile. So Nehemiah is out living far uh, away in exile, and there's just these uh, remnant of Jewish refugees that are coming back to the promised land and rebuilding Jerusalem, and Nehemiah is going to be part of that. Now, why were they in exile to begin with? Because of disobedience. And God was trying to get a hold of his people and have them recognize his consequences when we walk away from God. But as they began to draw close to him again, he sent them back. And they started to rebuild from the rubble that was the aftermath of their disobedience. And they were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah sought God's guidance to to determine how he should be involved in God's rebuilding process. So there's this big picture, okay? That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's going to be Jesus' coming several centuries after Nehemiah is on the ground in Jerusalem, but it's all one story. It's all one story of God working with his people to draw them to himself to obedience so that he can bless them. I have to say this. I, we're, we're talking now, and have been for a few weeks, and we're going to, for the next couple months, we're going to be talking about Nehemiah. And the big manifestation of Nehemiah's obedience to God's plan is that he rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem that had, been, had fallen down when it was destroyed by the Babylonians. So when I say rebuilding the wall, when I talk about building a wall, is there anything going on in the world right now that talks about building a wall? I mean, it's inescapable, right? So we got, we got this talk about the wall. But see, in, in God's economy here, this big salvation history piece in Ephesians 2, 13 through 14, it says, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, that is Jews and Gentiles one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. God's desire is to bring all people together. But in Nehemiah's time, that was not the case. He, he was still working with the, the Israelites to cause his glory to be manifested through their obedience. But the ultimate purpose was to not just focus with the Israelites, but to open up his grace to the entire world. Applying scripture can be hard and we can get hung up. Uh, There's um, been Christian leaders on a national stage that have talked about 
you know, the, 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 the wall on the southern border of America and, and it being built as being somehow a, uh, a, an application of Nehemiah building the wall of Jerusalem. And people say, God is in this and God wants us to build the wall. How, however, I would just observe that on the other side of that argument, um, while the southern water, border wall is about keeping immigrants out, Nehemiah is about immigrants going to Jerusalem and building a wall to protect themselves from the people that were already there. We can get in trouble if we're not careful as we apply Scripture. So regardless of how this might trigger thoughts about American national politics right now, I want to back away from that and say just be careful but talk about what God wants us to do to apply this to our own lives and and how he wants to plug us into his grand rebuilding process of bringing the world to Jesus. So if we can do that, let's, let's plow on. Nehemiah heard God speak to him that God wanted him to be part of the rebuilding process for his people. And so Nehemiah, who, who worked for King Artaxerxes in exile, remember, in the, this is after the exile, and he's in a foreign land. He's in a high-ranking high position, but he goes to the king, and he asks if he can go back to the homeland of his people and engage in a rebuilding process. Last time we were gathered together, Nick uh, talked about this. Let me, let me just read for you. Nehemiah 2, 7 through 10, this is Nehemiah speaking to the king. If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, king of the royal park, so that he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple. And for the city wall and for the residence I occupy, because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, gave them the king's letter. The king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So are we tracking what's going on here? God raised up Nehemiah to be part of his plan, his rebuilding process for his people. Nehemiah answered God's call, and God's gracious hand was on him, and he gave him favor with the king. And, and he made that long journey from Persia, all the way back to Jerusalem. But when he got there, the officials that were there, who were in opposition to the Israelites who were returning, they were very much disturbed. So here's a principle that's good for us to realize, good for us to know, important for us to hear, if we desire to be obedient to God and be engaged in the rebuilding process that he has for the world and, and, and to find our place in that and cooperate with God's purposes, 
when we cooperate with God's purposes, we will face opposition. Yes, God blesses us, and yes, God's hand is upon us when we're obedient to him, and and that blessing is evident and real. However, immediately following that blessing, without fail, there is opposition that seeks to get in our way to keep us from cooperating with God's purposes. Let's drive on and read further on in Nehemiah 2. So Nehemiah is back. He's, he's got the official letters from the king, but the local officials are going to give him a hard time. And let's face it, the king in Persia lived a long, Artaxerxes lived a far, far away, far, far distance away. And the local folks, the local politicians and governors and so forth were opposed to God's people. So Nehemiah does this. He says, it says in verse 11, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few, few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do to, for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. It's a lot of gates we're going to talk about. Dung gates, that's my favorite right there. The, the, they generated some manure in the temple system, those sacrifices. Um, they, they, they walked in, and in the way they walked in, uh, they, they left some gifts there before they made it to their ultimate uh, destination. So guess what the dung gate was for? So they, they had to get some of that stuff out of there. But anyway, went uh, by the dung gate examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, its gates, which had been destroyed by fire then. I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, and there was not enough room for my mount to get through. Imagine that, so much rubble that a horse couldn't walk through the rubble. All right? So I, I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, turned back, re-entered through the valley gate. The officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. So notice the preparation that Nehemiah has been involved in. If you think back, if you were here a couple weeks ago um, when Nick was covering Nehemiah 1, and the prayer that Nehemiah was engaged in when he first heard about the need in Jerusalem, he prayed for something like three or four months before he even approached the king and asked to be able to do something about the need in Jerusalem. When was the last time you felt that there was something that needed to be addressed in your life and you spent four solid months praying before you did anything about it? God prepared Nehemiah's heart and he prepared it through prayer, but he didn't stop praying and he didn't stop preparing after he got started with the work. And so the preparation is still going on. In verse 12 here of Nehemiah 2, it says, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart. You see, God does a work in our heart before we engage in the, the work 
of our hands and feet that he has for us in his plan of rebuilding. So what's God putting in your heart? How are you allowing God to prepare your heart? How are you taking in the news of what's going on in the world and asking God how you should be involved in that? How is it as, as things kind of fall apart around you? How is it that you're asking God not just to fix it, but to prepare your heart to be involved in the rebuilding process. Well, Nehemiah was allowing God to do that work in his heart, and and he's getting ready to reveal it, but he hasn't revealed it yet. But notice here at uh, verse 16, it says, I had said nothing to the Jews, priests, nobles, or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. That's pretty amazing, right? So it's one thing to hear God's voice and, and to respond when he wants us to do something. It's another thing entirely when he says, I want you to go out and I want you to gather together with others and be a leader in the rebuilding process. That's what he had for Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is about to reveal to others what God has been speaking to his heart. I can be really honest with you over the years, both in, uh, well, in, in whatever ministry setting I've been in, and I've been in several, but particularly in, in pastoral ministry, it's been a very common experience for me for people to tell me what God wants me to do. Not what God wants them to do, what God wants me to do. So, so there's very often people that rise up and, and say, this is what you should do as a pastor of a church or, or whatever. Nehemiah's about to do that for others, but he's not saying this is what you need to do. He says this is what... God has told me we need to do together. And he isn't hasty about telling others what to do. He's spending months of preparation in prayer and in surveying what's going on before he begins to bring others into the process. But let's, let's go on now and read verses 17 through 20 and see how he brings others into the process. Verse 17, I said to him, this is Nehemiah speaking, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told him about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. This is what you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We're his servants. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Notice, as soon as Nehemiah revealed his plan, there were two different responses 
to the announcement that he gave of what God had laid on his heart. There was the one response of the, the Israelites, the Jewish people that were in the Jerusalem area. They said, let's rebuild. He said, God's gracious hand was on me. And they recognized that and they wanted to cooperate. However, what did we say earlier? Anytime God touches us and seeks to call us into his work, we can sense God's gracious hand upon us, but immediately opposition rises up. And so the opposition rose up. They mocked and ridiculed and told lies. You're rebelling against the king. He had the king's letter in his hand. Didn't matter. Facts didn't matter. They're, gonna, they're, they're going to... Uh, oppose that which they don't want to see happen in any way that they can. Besides, the king lived really far away, and they were right there with their military might and their armies. But how does Nehemiah respond to them? He responds to them the same way he responded to God's people who were receptive to the message. He said, God has told us to do this. The God of heaven will give us success, verse 20 says. So there's instruction in that, I believe. There's application in that for our lives, I believe. When we know God's hand is upon us, and let's be sure that we know that God's hand is upon us. Let's be sure we do the the homework, the the time of prayer and and survey and make sure that we've we've got things together. But when God says move, we need to move, and then we 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 bring God's people into it and say, This is what God is telling me. And if they they all acknowledge it, yes, this is what God wants us to do, if we have that confirmation that God's hand is upon us and opposition arises, how do we respond? We tell them what God has told us. God has told us to do this. Nehemiah shared God's leading with God's people. He also shared God's leading with God's enemies because God is the one who was leading. It was his plan. Not Nehemiah's. When God leads us, we need to give God the glory and we need to make sure people know what it is we're doing. We are taking part in God's rebuilding process. So we're going to move on. And instead of reading chapter 3, which is riveting stuff, it's a bunch of people's names and the different gates and parts of the wall that they worked on. And there's a bunch of gates. I already told you what my favorite one was. But the fish gate, sheep gate, the old gate, valley gate, dung gate, fountain gate, water gate. Not politics. Water gate. That reminds me of something else. Horse gate, east gate, inspection gate. All these gates. And, and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a mile and a half in circumference or a little longer. So think about this. This, this huge wall broken down in disrepair in some places Nehemiah had to kind of scramble hand over hand to just get through and get around they've they've got to rebuild this thing that has fallen down and been destroyed and so they assigned the people different sections of the wall between these various gates and the people that worked on it and the section that they have are included in Nehemiah chapter 3. Remember, Nehemiah said, we need to do this work together. And the people said, yeah, 
Let us start rebuilding. But if we look down through the, through the list, as we read through Nehemiah 3, there's a few people, not all, but a few of them, that are given little descriptions of, of what their occupation was. And so Nehemiah, it isn't included there in chapter 3. We, we read about it earlier in Nehemiah. He's a cupbearer to, to the king, which was an official within a king's palace. So, so, so he's this, uh, this, uh, this political administrative guy from the Persian Empire. In other words, he probably had soft hands, not calloused hands because he worked in a palace. There were priests. There were goldsmiths, perfume makers. There were various rulers of, of the people, again, officials, not as high-ranking as Nehemiah, but, but high-ranking people. There were daughters. That's significant because the, the, the daughters that are mentioned, that means these are young girls. They, they married pretty young back then, and so these would be t- you know, young teenage girls that are out there. Levites, they, they, were, they were folks that kind of uh, did work in the temple. Uh, temple workers who helped the Levites, there were guards. And there were merchants. I didn't see a single mason in the list. I didn't see anybody in the list that um, appeared to have the background necessary to build a city wall. But these are the people that were called to the work. And then in verse 5, there's uh, this, this statement. The nobles... Again, some of, some of the folks were rulers. The nobles of Tekoa, who were one of the groups that were assigned a section of the wall, would not put their soldiers to the work under their supervisors. So you've got these lazy guys that are part of the, the crowd, okay? But a little bit further down in verse 20, you've got this guy named Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repairing another section. So Baruch is working twice as hard as anybody else. So you got lazy folks and you got hardworking folks and you got everyone in between. And most of these people have no idea what they're doing, but God has called them to the work of rebuilding this wall. And they said, let us do it because God has called us to it. Things tend to fall apart in life. We know that. And very often it seems like we're surrounded by rubble more than finished uh, product. And just when we seem to be getting a little bit ahead, the, the work that we've done very often feels like it's coming tumbling down. And, and as we seek to move forward, there's always opposition if we're seeking to follow God's will. But something in the grand scheme of God's rebuilding process for the world, throughout salvation history, this rings true, is that God always calls his people to do his work together. There's comfort in that. Because we weren't designed to be alone. However, as we experience the reality of doing God's work together and responding to his call to be engaged in his rebuilding process. 
sometimes the reality of doing God's work together bumps up uh, uh, against sort of the, the theory of it, and we see who we actually have to work with, and sometimes that causes us to be a little discouraged because the people that God calls us to work with are people just like us, people with flaws, people who very often feel like perfume makers being called to to be heavy masonry workers, and we say, I'm just not fit for this task, yet God says do it anyway. But when God calls us together to do his work, it isn't about our ability, it isn't about uh, our, our, um, our strength, in fact, just the opposite. It's about our willingness to obey God's call. So I don't know what the application is of Nehemiah 1 through 3 for you. Not even sure I know what the application is for me, but I believe that as we allow this to soak into us, God will cause his gracious hand to be upon us and he will put in our heart what his application is. I know this, God has called us together to be involved in his rebuilding process. And so it's our choice how we, do, we um, respond to that call. So let's pray together. So our God, we know that you're gracious and your grace extends to us through your son Jesus and by your Holy Spirit to call us into your work. We pray that we'd be obedient to the call that you place on our hearts. Show us what it is you would have us to do individually and as your people. And God, we ask that as we do it, we do it in the strength and the power of the holy name of Jesus who died and rose again to save us from our sins. Amen.